You're listening to Hello, everybody. It's the Spindle Podcast with Mark and John. Welcome to the Spindle, a podcast about 7-inch records. I'm Mark. I'm John. And in each episode, we talk about one 7-inch record and hopefully give you some insight into it that you haven't heard before. We both got into music in the 80s and 90s when 7-inches were super important, especially on independent labels. So that's the era we mostly draw from. But we sometimes pick some stuff earlier or later than that, too. And either way, we try to keep it short and to the point, just like 7-inches do. So on this episode, we are going to talk about the Melvin 7-inch Night Goat Backed with Adolescent Wet Dream. It was released in 1992 on Amphetamine Reptile Records. Recorded the year before by Jonathan Burnside and Billy Anderson. I'm not sure exactly where. Um, the A-side uh, was written by the band, and the B-side is a cover of a Pussy Galore song written by John Spencer, who they actually credit on that side, but they spell his name J-O-H-N, which is really J-O-N. <laughs> um, the, 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 J-O-H-N supremacy, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, the the night code on the A-side is uh, 33 RPM, and play, it's like a six-minute song, and then the B-side is actually 45 RPM, and it's just, just under two minutes. And so the band at this point was King Buzzo on guitar and vocals, uh, Salty Green, who is Joe Preston on bass, and Dale Crover on drums. So, so, so this is one of the first episodes where I'm relatively new to a lot of what's, what we're going to be talking about. I, I like the Melvins, but I'm not very well versed in them. I have a couple records that I really dig. And this is a record I actually had not heard before John picked it and been listening to the past couple of days. And really, I really like it. I think it's awesome, but I don't know a ton about it. So John can po- hopefully fill me and everybody else in on, on some of the details or at least where they were at this point. I mean, this is their first record on AMREP, which, they end up doing a lot of records with them. And I think it's the one of the, maybe the first one that Joe Preston was on. I want to say they were on a dope guns. That's oh point yeah. This. Yeah. That's a good point. And, but yes, as far as an official Melvin seven inch, this is mm-hmm. apparently the first one. Um, mm-hmm. And what a doozy it is. Yeah. Joe Preston, from what I read, he's on this, but he wasn't in the band. I mean, he's pretty short time in the band. Is that. Like he was in there like a year, maybe. Okay, they did cool. like yeah, he's on Lysol. Um, okay. he might, I mean, I don't think he's on eggnog, I think he's on just Lysol. And then the attendant, they put out some other singles and played a bunch of they played a big tour around that time. And like, for instance, they did a video called A Thousand of the Salad of a Thousand Delights that he's the bassist for. And they were kind of starting to peak because it's like post Bullhead, and Bullhead seemed to like really crack them open, like something something happened there where they were, the shows were just driving people crazy because they're so good. And uh, Bullhead is really, a lot of it is very catchy. And while at the same time, having that same grinding, punching mm-hmm. uh, elliptical quality that their other records had, you know, but the other records had really short tracks, but now they were getting into writing longer tracks that, and they, they kind of write hooks. I mean, they really kind of do, you know, there's a poppy quality to what they do. And so uh, I think they were kind of peaking now in Night Goat. I think, I mean, it just another peak, you know, just blew everybody's head because it's such an amazing rock song. It's got to be one of the best. Like, it, I, why isn't it like Smoke on the Water or something like that? You know, like, <laughs> right, it's just right. that riff is just deathless.
Yeah, I like to, I really, for, for sort of a new listener to it, the repetition aspect of it, there were parts, a couple times when I was listening, it's like, this is like a heavy metal fall song. Almost, yeah, well, you know, you know it's, I, I was going to compare it to that, actually, because mm-hmm. uh, two songs that really come to mind, uh, one of them that would have come before this one called uh, Tempo House, which is mostly just bass with Mark yelling over it. Uh, and another one, it strikes me somewhat like it is blindness, which has that real driving mm-hmm. baseline, and just that's the focus of the song. And there's just the three minutes of the bass just grinding away like that. That's that is very fall like. The lyrics too, which seem to be, I think he's using a little cut up method there or something. Um, if you read them close, they do track a bit in a very abstract kind of way, but sometimes it looks he. I think his writing is really interesting. Like, what do you think of his writing encountering it now? Yeah. Specifically on this song, I, I, I do like the, 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 the sort of cut up aspect. It's almost more about picking words that, that conjure images and go with the music rather than making each line work with the next line. Although as you read it more, they do work with each other and they have some logic, but it's just sort of like using the word grunt and using the word teeth and using the word dark. And it just seems like, well, he's not. For instance, he's he's not grinding his teeth. He's grunting his teeth. Uh-huh. You know what I'm <laughs> right. saying? Uh-huh. And and uh-huh. the, that su- subtle shifting that is very that is very Mark Smith like. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of if you if you start to see that he flips words like that sometimes, it's like oh. Uh, and then other times he does seem like he's just just a full on scramble. But if sometimes like Burroughs, you can sort of squint at the scrambling and sort of be like oh okay i see i kind of see what was scrambled and Uh how it was scrambled and stuff like that Uh, but i think the words are spectacular i love them you know you can't sing them along with them or something like that but incredible imagery uh really conjures a mood um goes perfectly with that weird rising riff that never seems to stop yeah totally yeah i mean they just they, they 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 match the mood of the music really well without it being sort of like one-to-one or sort of on the nose you know it just it's right around the same territory as the music and i i got a sense a little bit reading about them that they have a little bit of an rem quality where people couldn't often couldn't tell what he was singing until unless you had a lyric sheet oh yeah yeah preposterous nobody yeah (laughs) definitely not a sing-along band you know like that Uh like if 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 they were another band this would have a whole thing with everybody going night goat night goat night goat but it doesn't happen (laughs) it's a big dumb it's what is it it's a big dumb hell that's as close as you get Uh to something like that right i was reading that when he gave the record to tom hazelmeyer and and i guess hazelmeyer was asking him about the cover that uh oh buzz said that the song was about junkies and so it is interesting that it's a song that kind of spends time in a way just it it starts off with the big bass thing that just goes on and on and on and on especially the the amrap version has got way more of that and you know like half the length of the song is this Mm -hmm. just joe preston playing that riff over and over again with noise Mm -hmm. over it it just is interesting how it ties into that idea just the feel of the song has that kind of perpetual quality that like, do you ever get out of that junkie sort of time and being stuck with somebody like that who needs to get off the treadmill or something like that? Right. Right. That, um, that Preston opening, I mean, this is probably a little bit of a stretch, but maybe it's just because I've been listening to the Coltrane lately, but it reminded me of a Jimmy Garrison. It's like, okay, you're just going to listen to the bass bass player 
for a couple minutes. It's that this isn't just like a, a tone setting thing. This is like you're gonna listen to the bass player, <laughs> yeah, for a yeah. while before we start this song. You know, no, that was a common technique though for them. There are other songs like that where everything stops and the bass just goes. That's plainly a, a thing uh, with them. And this one's super effective. Like it, it, it still manages even though it's just like that. You would think that would be make it a little less catchy or a little less poppy or something like that but it doesn't it's just it's just like okay more of the riff thank you you know and you just can tell that something's going to kick in at some point the whole time it's going you're like mm-hmm. when's it going to come when's it going to come right 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 no, that, drum, that aspect of it's great too and then the drums kick in and it's just like oh um so it's kind of i think the the difference is so the the version that's on amrep is extremely noisy a lot of reverb all over it has a longer bass intro, uh, grimier sound overall. The guitar is almost barely audible in points mm-hmm. and uh, is mostly just this kind of noise, like a kind of a lot of it. Vocals are somewhat buried. Uh, he plays these little guitar solos, but they just sort of kind of poke their heads out of this massive murk. Like the focus is clearly on that bass, just grinding away on that riff for the entire time. And the drums, the drums are very prominent too but super reverbed and echoey it makes it uh sort of an intense more intense experience mm-hmm. in some ways darker uh, whereas the houdini version is like they chop the bass off at the beginning it's a shorter intro mm-hmm. uh the guitars are much louder like and punchy like super in your face and so when they get to the the coda part which is kind of catchy like a big catchy black sabbath riff or something like that it really really hits like it's not just like this sort of like in the seven inch it's more of kind of a denouement whereas in the houdini it's sort of like a almost a semi sort of second climax to the song right. in some ways right and for people who don't know i'm not sure if we mentioned already but so they re-recorded this song for an album that came out the year later called houdini so that's what that's the, what we're talking about in terms of comparing the two and and I, I like that version a lot too but this one kind of the fact that it's less technically dynamic makes it more hypnotic like everything is kind of churning churning in the same way i mean you know, it's butthole it sounds like butthole surfers too doesn't it doesn't remind right. you of oh, like chair totally. you know like the uh, psychic powerless era butthole surfers i'd say flipper a lot of flipper in that metal box era PIL. And who who were the like the touchstones for them at this time? Was it Sabbath and and that kind of heavy? No, uh, I don't know. Or... Reading about it, I mean, I think you know anybody our age at least likes a little Sabbath. I don't think you can get around that. But I think it was a lot more like the the notion of taking like kind of what at that time in the eighties, early eighties, was thought of as heavy metal. You know, we're talking pre all of the different metal genres, but Judas Priest and stuff like that, you know, Black Flag and just in a natural way being like, well, I don't know, how does that sound? You know, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of bands that did that at the time. I mean, the Melvins are just one. I can, there were many bands in DC that did this. Uh, fame, you know, Malifice was a band that did this. Melvins kind of just kept going and popped into this kind of completely their own voice with it in a weird way um like it's kind of it's funny to imagine um my daughter is a big metallica fan and metallica and melvins are somewhat contemporaneous like those bands totally. formed almost exactly the same time you could almost if you, you think about it, it you're talking about two different ways metal went the concept of metal in the early 80s metallica that arena stadium style of metal Whereas the gnarly musical side of it goes with the Melvins, you know, mm-hmm. and I mean, sort of like, well, why didn't 
I don't know. Does that make sense to me? But yeah, yeah, totally. And it's funny too that they were because of where they were from and because of who they knew, they got sort of pulled into the grand. You know, once Nirvana got big, Cobain was touting them a lot, and they sort of got pulled into this. Oh, they're like the progenitors of grunge, or like they're well, like they the, the step before grunge, which they, they did. did they but did. also, <laughs> like once you hear them, you're like, oh wait, there. This is something also completely different from what came after it. Too, I think. Right. I mean, you know, it's not. It doesn't sound like what I thought grunge was after I'd heard grunge. Not that I couldn't hear the similarities and and somehow in the ways that people had taken from them, but it definitely is its own thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think grunge initially was just sort of a mashup of underground, the underground rock of the '80s with the hard rock of the '70s. And to the extent that you wanted to be gnarly or poppy, you just fix the dosage, you know. And so <laughs> right. that's how you get either Nirvana or Melvins. And it's a fairly organic thing, but as far as I guess that area, if you're going to speak specifically about grunge, I'm pretty sure it's the you know, mm-hmm. leaving aside some of the more established punk bands at the time, the Melvins were huge in that because all of those young people their age saw them kind of, it seems right. like. And even those other bands that were starting out were struck by them and what they were up to, we were almost immediately like considered to be like, oh, wow, listen to that. Like if in the documentary, Chris Novoselic, uh, makes it we talk everybody talks about Melvins is like doom or sludge or whatever he says he, he meeting them in high school he's talking about when he saw them in high school he's like they were a really sophisticated band you know and i think that when you think about it, it it's it's like he's taking these things as a vehicle to try and make more sophisticated art and in that sense it's very much like the falls project where it's like taking this like regular stuff just the dumbest stuff you can imagine you know hard rock uh, dumb skateboard punk hardcore and trying to turn it into something that is has depth and quality to it and many different layers you know mm-hmm. and we also right. have to talk about how he lucked into having finding somebody like dale crover perhaps one of the great american drummers period you know yeah. I, mean, I mean he's that, incredible on this that's sure. it's unbelievable i mean just to mm-hmm. to watch him play this this drum arrangement which he plays you see him play it all that they play the song still all the time it's just remarkable. It's hard to say. I mean, nobody sounded like that before, except it just makes perfect sense. It kind of atomizes hard rock and metal. And I think some of that comes from from Buzz, but it's like a very beef hearty approach of like, what happens if you take a beat that's normally going this fast and first of all, slow it down, but try to slow it down and change it to the point where you've almost atomized it. And mm-hmm. then you can start subtracting things and then that's what you have. A, that's where you're getting like a Melvin's sort of drum beat. Yeah. And no, I, I think I like the way you said they're trying to make something, you know, that they were sophisticated and they were trying to make something sort of a higher level out, out of it. But it would, but it's not by going in the direction of more complicated music. It's sort of by leaning into the simplicity of the music in a lot of ways and, or, or the repetition at least and finding, you know, complex stuff inside of that. Right. It's how they avoid pretension. I mean, real pretension, like they are kind of, I mean, it's a pretentious concept in a good way. Like you're, (laughs) you're trying, you're, you're aspiring above your station. You know, they're a bunch Mm -hmm. of kids from a logging community. So the idea that they would make the kind of art that they've made, which is incredible, actually, you know, if you look at the breadth of the Melvin's career is sort of a testimony to how durable that concept is, you know, taking simply, and it's, I mean, Yoko Ono does it. Mm -hmm. It's a very, it's like, I don't think they're deliberately thinking fluxus but it's very similar to we've talked about other performance art very similar to fluxus what's at hand how can i make this art you know a lot of the best things start that way 
and that video you were mentioning the the salad of that salad of a thousand delights it was filmed at one of the k festivals oh right right that was one of the first even though like like i said at the beginning i haven't been able to dive into them as much as i wanted to when you played that for me it's been quite you know probably 15 20 years ago there's something about watching the way they played that's a lot different than hearing records, even though the records are awesome, but you find, find out something that they're doing, especially with the repetition. That's kind of, it's, it's, there's almost like a kraut thing to some of the stuff that I remember seeing on that tape. That's the depth. Yeah. Well, there's, that's right. They were going through that era, that era in particular, they were doing things like Charma Karma Cat. They're doing all these longer tracks and dronier tracks. Like they really, they started off doing these bite-sized, like really wild little metal gnarled little metal tracks that seemed to not make any sense and didn't repeat parts and so they'd have like 15 20 tracks on a record sometime you know like maybe not that many but a lot of tracks on a record little two minute tracks and stuff and then they'd have like an eight minute grinding thing where it's just a drone you know and so then when they started writing really like multi-part songs and stuff I think it just totally took off as far as giving them possibilities and doing different things like going a different direction. So part of what we're describing about them could almost make it seem like, oh, they're kind of almost proggy, but I don't think of them as proggy really. You know, I don't, uh, maybe there's a little hint of, Oh, they're a one-off. You can't, it's, there's no compare. I like the, you know, something like the fall is not a bad comparison because it's right. Because um, of the uniqueness. Yeah. It just, there's nothing like it. You know, uh, he really did. They they knocked it out of the park. They managed to ride. Like, I mean, how many people came through the whole major label thing, integrity intact? That's true. With three of yeah. their best records in hand, mm-hmm. cash in hand. I mean, a couple mm-hmm. bands did, but, you know, mm-hmm. they did that too. Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, encountering this for like relative first time uh, this week. The B side is just like right up my alley because it's a Pussy Galore cover. Who I love Pussy Galore, but I also am I'm super impressed by the fact that they make it sound like their own song. At the same time, there are some Pussy Galore aspects to it. Like there's there's sort of the John Spencer growl kind of hint in his vocals, and it's got a sort of a similar tempo, but they you know they they sludge it up a little bit more, and it's it's cool that they could see in that song what they ended up with. <laughs> ended up doing because i don't yeah. think i would have ever imagined that from that pussy galore song it, it always great and i love that they picked that one because the structure of that one's so funny the way it ends with just the drums and stuff and <laughs> yeah. uh it it's like kind of a very strangely constructed song so of course he'd love it
I like that they just basically like looks like they just learned the chords, learned the words, and one, two, three, uh-huh. go, and just played it like <laughs> yeah. the Melvins. And uh-huh. so it's groovier and a little heavier. It seems like it's mm-hmm. roughly the same speed. Yeah, it's interesting you say it's pretty much the same tempo. It's basically, you know, it's not like they change a bunch of the chords or make it into a different a completely different style or remix it or whatever. But yeah. at the same time, like if I was a Melvin fan who a fan who heard that and then later heard the Pussy Glore song, I'd be like, wow, those are two very different. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Was, you know. Like I said, it sounds like they just played it. Oh, this is our song now. You know, it just right. sounds like <laughs> right. they wrote uh-huh. it, which I think is, you know, the biggest honor you can kind of do a good song. And I'm impressed the song stands up. Like right. some of those Pussy Galore songs definitely are made of attitude as much as anything. And, uh-huh. you know, John Spencer, one of the great, song salesman of all time that can make almost <laughs> anything be entertaining for a couple minutes but that one is really it's got uh, that beef hearty quality that the the melvins seem to be trying to bring to their own music that really works in its favor as far as the melvins covering it and it sounded like pretty cool operation yeah yeah i mean i think often sometimes a, a cover can sound sort of like, hey, we're, we like this song, so we're going to do it in the style of a genre or whatever. But the right, right. did it in, in the style of their genre, the, the, which is just the Melvins. <laughs> they, right, they yeah. never, and you know, they do a lot of covers. They do all sorts of covers. Like, they cover, mm-hmm. I mean, Lysol, there's two covers on Lysol. Uh, and in fact, I think maybe there's a snippet of another song, but they cover Sacrifice by Flipper, and they cover um, Ballad of Dwight Fry by Alice Cooper. Uh, but the, the, it just sounds like whenever they approach a cover, they're just basically, they figure out the, I mean, they almost like a garage band, you know, they figure out the chords one, two, three, let's go. They're just so thoroughly themselves that they don't really, I don't, don't get the sense that they have to be like, how could we make this sound like us? It's just, we can make no, it sound like yeah, us by, yeah. by playing it. It's <laughs> just more it material. It. It's just more yeah. material <laughs> grist for the mill, you know, to, to put the same kind of, uh, elements of making something a little smarter than you think it is. It's funny going back to the lyrics of Nightgood. I'm, I'm as you were talking about them, I started scrolling through them a little bit. I definitely really think it's one of the great things is the alternations between, you know, noun verb sentences and then just I'm going to throw a bunch of words into one line, you know, whether or yeah. not they make a sentence, you know. And but if it's not not like I'm going to throw it in like I don't care anymore, but more like that balances out the more logical stuff, which it's a poem. Is, it's yeah, a poem. Yeah. It's a yeah. it's a poem set to some of the most. I mean, like it's crazy. And a lot of his songs are like this and really catchy. I read a lot of Mark Smith's poetry and I mean, writing, you know, have the both the fall books and reading them. It is, I mean, I don't mean to say he's ripping them off. It also reminds me a lot of Beefheart's lyrics, mm-hmm. which have that same surrealistic poetry quality to them right? while still right. being like, oh, there's something you, you can feel the thread. And they do very well with using it as almost like painting a visual image of, an emotional state yeah it's got that great ability to to make you feel like there's there's a there's a randomness to it but make you realize pretty quickly that they go together also you know simultaneously can can do that is this is this up there with their best songs i mean it's a i think i think night goat is one of the great hard rock songs great rock songs of uh any era of american music i you know i mean obviously it's said other things but this is incredible song every version of it there's no bad versions there's there's just night goat (laughs) it's just exists it's like i think it's sort of underrated in the rock pantheon Uh um it manages to be catchy and intense and avant-garde um and surprising in a lot of ways 
you know, how did you, so you hadn't heard it before. It's kind of a reaction podcast yeah. after talking about it for a while. Like what was your, you know, what do you, what's your overall sort of take on it? For encountering it for the first time. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, it hit me right away the first time because of the repetition. I like, I really liked it. Got, it got, especially the bass part. Once they picked that bass part, they were like smart enough to know this can care. This can do what it's doing for an mm-hmm. entire song. And that's going to be good. It's not like that's all there is to it, but that part right away, I clicked on to his vocals took me a little while. Not to, not, not that I didn't like him right away, but I didn't quite appreciate him until like, you know, I, I'd listened a bunch of times and realized kind of what he was doing cadence wise. And because yeah, yeah. at first, at first it doesn't sound that different from some other things I've heard before, but he has this way of making it kind of worm into your head mm-hmm. in a way that great. He's you know, a really underrated, really great singer. Like mm-hmm. there's so much stuff he can do. He goes, he can sound like this sort of operatic heavy metal kind of guy, or he can do this beef hearty thing, or uh, he has his own sort of distinct, like rock whale sing thing. Um, he seems to be able to hit any note he wants to hit, you know, very good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and just, I, it's one of those songs where the elements are all there right away. I don't know that I, that I, that wasn't something, something I wasn't hearing at first, but there were definitely the, the way they work together didn't click right as, I mean, I liked it right away, but like the more I listened to it, the more I'm like, okay, all these elements are really not only working together, they're almost like dependent on each other like the, every every part of the song the, the guitar the bass the singing is interlocked in it's syncopated way, you know? it's yeah. syncopated it's like mm-hmm. first of all they pick the notes and they let them do the work like you were saying it is syncopated but because there's only so much going on sometimes it's hard to pick up on how complex that syncopation is you know and, and there is a monolithic quality where you're listening to one noise and then you realize well the drums aren't playing with the bass they're playing against the bass right if right. you think about it like sync up they're bouncing off of that and then the it's less apparent and that's that one than when you listen to the houdini one where you really hear the guitar riff too that that's another layer to it in a way but yeah, but it definitely, I mean, I could definitely see it becoming a song that I'll always like and always remember because it, 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 it fits in that wheelhouse of mine where it's, it's there's a simplicity to it so that you don't, you get it right away, the thrust of it, but it keeps revealing stuff the more you hear it and it keeps, you, you start to find things in it that you're like, okay, this is more than just uh, a good simple song. There's more more to it than right. that. It's hard, hard to explain, but that that's not that easy to pull off. But the one-two punch of the two sides of that tells you a lot about where you know about the melvins and about uh what kind of art you're in for like the both sides of those things the song they do the same thing you know adolescent wet dream is kind of weirdly sophisticated how do they remember that song like the (laughs) parts go by and you're like what Uh and uh the lyrics are kind of these cool parody-ish sort of lyrics that obviously smart dumb you know putting putting cool stuff together and you got the same thing on the other side and uh i think if you listen to both of those songs you have a you're starting to have a real good grip on what the melvins are about if you were curious about listening to more of them because that definitely you would get a good sense of them from this single listening to just both sides of it well that's cool i'm glad you dug it awesome yeah i really did i'm glad you picked i'm a huge melvins fan i i think they're incredible i've been listening to them for years and uh um down the hopefully down the melvin's wormhole you know because there's so much to listen to awesome well this has been a really cool one and uh thanks everybody for listening and uh we will check you have i hope everybody's having a good 2023 so far and we'll we'll check you on the next episode all right cheers guys see you 
The Spindle is produced by John Howard and me, Mark Masters. I'm also the audio editor. Our theme song is by the great band Honey Radar. Our podcast is brought to you by Wasteoids, audio and video from Hello Merch. Find more podcasts and videos at wasteoids.com. And please leave a rating and a review of our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.